Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers with your gumboots on. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello there, Jane McNaughton here with you today on Countrywide. I'm looking forward to spending the next half an hour with you. Coming up on the show today, the Federal Agriculture Minister has flagged a big increase in biosecurity spending in next month's budget, but it's unclear how the government will pay for it. And some of the fresh produce you've been enjoying on the cheap recently might be in for a price hike. You're listening to Countrywide across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. Australia Post has backflipped on its decision to cease carrying perishable items in a move welcomed by producers reliant on the service. Farmers were shocked when Australia Post announced it would no longer allow meats, seafood, eggs or frozen meals to be sent in the mail because of complex food safety and regulations. Now the Australian Small Business Ombudsman has been called in to develop a long-term fix. North Tasmanian salmon farm co-owner Ben Piker sends up to $100,000 worth of hot-smoked salmon and spices through the mail via Australia Post each year. He says the looming June 30 cut-off had caused him a lot of stress. Common sense has prevailed, or logic. It's great. It's really good news. How have you been feeling this week, having that date of June 30 looming over your head? Well, I mean, as I suspect most of the businesses that use that service would have been feeling kind of un, well, uncertain. You know, I have customers that want product and they've been asking, oh, can I, can't I, how do we do this, what will we do in the future? And, I mean, I've been having some conversations with other, um, other suppliers of freight to look at potential solutions. But, I mean, I've been doing pretty much the same as everyone else, just trying to deal with the damage, deal with the fallout. Basically, go into you know recovery mode to sort of try and see if there's a possibility of replacing that system with anything else. That's that's what we've been doing. That's what we've been doing for the past. Well, when did we find this out? We found it out at early March. Since then, the acting CEO of Australia Post says that they're going to quote develop a long-term solution and a sustainable solution to support this growing e-commerce industry. What's your reaction to that? Firstly, well, I mean that's great. Um, in a in conversations that um, we and other businesses have had with Australia Post, that's pretty much what we suggested that they ought to do. They need to sort of um, future-proof their system, and that isn't that doesn't just mean continue doing what they're doing. That actually means to go above and beyond what they're doing and improve it, because it is the basic way of the future. That you know, like I mean, more people are going to order online, more people are going to want more stuff, and. More people are going to move into rural settings, maybe out of the cities, maybe working from home, and then you're going to need these facilities because people are not going to necessarily want to go in to big city centres or shops or whatever in the future, and therefore that facility needs to, you know, be grown and improved. Like, I mean, in the future, who knows, maybe there will be a perishable freight system that's implemented, you know, and that would be fantastic. That probably is one of the things down the track that will have to come into place through necessity. But um, for now, I mean, I think that's what they should be doing. 
You and some of your fellow colleagues in the business community had a meeting with Australia Post and suggested that there was a 12-month reprieve mm-hmm. on this announcement. How long ago did you have that meeting? Uh, a couple of weeks. Do yeah, you, I think maybe two weeks ago. Do you feel as though you were listened to or do you feel as though Australia Post listened to the media? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, um, before the meeting, there was no... Uh, information, I suppose you could say, um, regarding what even the um, guidelines were for this decision. And that was with media pressure and all that sort of stuff. When they announced it, um, I think uh, we, 41 South, were on the um, the radio or the telly even, I'm not sure, talking about this exact issue and how it affected us. And up until we had that meeting, nothing really changed. And that was a few, two, few weeks in between. And then after we had that meeting, we stated our case quite, you know, frankly, to say, look, this is a multi-million dollar business opportunity that's going down the toilet. You've got to, you know, for lack of a better word, pull your finger out and fix it because it's needed to. So I, I would I would like to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that it wasn't a, a sort of a media pressure, although it would have definitely helped. However, I can't say that with certainty, obviously. So, Ben, any final words? Yay. Happy days. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's still... It's still inevitable that something needs to change, so we'll see uh, what happens in the future. You know, maybe costs come down, maybe efficiencies in- improve. I hope they do, uh, but for the short term, that's great outcome. Great news. North Tasmanian salmon farm co-owner Ben Piker there. In a statement, Australia Post says many small businesses have experienced huge growth in e-commerce sales during COVID-19 and that the original date for ceasing perishable transport would have caused significant disruption. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio. The Federal Agriculture Minister has flagged a big increase in biosecurity spending in next month's budget, but it's unclear how the government will pay for it. With the threat of the pig-killing disease African swine fever and other diseases like foot and mouth in other nations, the government says it plans to keep them out of Australia. Warwick Long is speaking here with Agriculture Minister David Littleproud. We've been having constructive conversation with industry. In fact, they're, in, they're actually engaging in wanting this more than anybody. We're going to go from around 5 million containers to about 8.5 million containers over the next decade. Uh, and at the moment, we've been able to uh, service that by surging resources from airports and, and ports into our bulk areas, whereby we can make those assessments. But when international travel comes back, that will take uh, many of that resources away. So this budget will be about making sure that we set up for that growth, that exponential growth of imports. Uh, but we're also investing in technology, not only at our airports and postal services, three-day x-rays, and then we're working with other countries about how we can do that for baggage as well. So is that money going to come from taxpayers, though, or is it going to come from something like a levy on shipping containers? A spectrum of, uh, of users that we will obviously be, be charging, and that's uh, where we get back to a cost recovery model. So we're working through that to make sure that it is sustainable, but that will be uh, probably before the end of the year, the way that we're moving with industry. So agriculture can expect a biosecurity budget coming next month? Definitely. Uh, that's the one thing that's been keeping me up at night. I mean, over a four-week period at the at the New South Wales Mail Centre, uh, we uh, of all the incursions that we found, 24% of them had African swine fever, 2% had foot and mouth disease. Uh, proudly, we've already cancelled 14 visas of people who failed to declare at our airports. 
and their, their visas have been cancelled for three years. And we've also lifted the penalties uh, from $444 on the spot to 2664 Plus, for large importers, we're now saying it's not $440,000, but it's over $1 million and the potential of 10 years jail. So uh, we, we are going to make sure that those that come into this country or bring goods into this country do it under our terms. If they don't, uh, that we will send you home or we will penalise or send you to jail. Minister, I'm speaking to you from an event from pig farmers here today in, in Bendigo and in Victoria. Obviously, African swine fever is at the forefront of their minds and it is has been a disease that has got quite close to this country, being in some of our neighbours already. How confident are you that your biosecurity measures can keep African swine fever out of the country? Well, I can't give 100% certainty. Uh, but what I can give is the certainty that we'll do whatever we can to make sure we keep it where it is. We've surged uh, $66.6 million uh, into African swine fever. Uh, so we're continuing to look at this as a significant threat and, and in the budget will be the maintaining and, and continuation of much of that work. Just on a few other issues from other industries, Minister, if I may, before our time is up, unions backed by Labor have put forward a plan to effectively put a floor in picking rates for for agriculture, fruit picking, which, where there's been troubles for Labor lately. Uh, the NFF and other groups have said this would effect, effectively abolish the peace rate. Uh, which has been the backbone of these industries for generations. What's your position on that? Yeah, well, obviously, um, there will be the Fair Work Commission will, will make a, a determination on that. They're a statutory authority who get to make an independent decision on that. I have some concerns around it. In fact, I was out at Caboolture the other day talking to actual uh, strawberry pickers themselves who, who see this as a retrograde step because uh, they make significantly more by a piece um, the piecework position rather than by an hourly rate. Uh, the workers themselves are not excited about this because it limits the amount and the capacity in which they can earn. So I think we need to be very careful about this and, I, and I've encouraged industry and as many to make sure that the Fair Work Commission and particularly workers, because they're the most powerful voice in this, if the workers themselves stand up and say this isn't a, this isn't a great step forward, that in fact we will earn less as a result of an hourly rate rather than a piecework Piece, uh, then, then uh, I think it has a far powerful message. That was Federal Agriculture Minister David Littleproud speaking with Warwick Long. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. One year ago, something quite strange happened on the oil market. The price of US crude oil crashed below zero US dollars a barrel for the first time ever. It was a symptom of crippling COVID-19 lockdowns and plunging global demand for fuel. Since then, it has bounced back to roughly 60 US dollars a barrel as economies recover. Fuel market expert Mark McKenzie says global demand for oil is still 60% down, but Australian retail demand for diesel and petrol have almost returned to pre-COVID levels. Uh, April was sort of monthless, horribleless, if I could put it that way. We saw um, most fuel retailers reporting a 55% cavitation in demand. So they were surviving on 45% of normal fuel revenues and still obviously had the same costs associated with running their business. We did see JobKeeper start to come into play, so that made things a bit easier later on. But it was horrific. I think there was – we've never before in our industry ever seen a hit like that. You know, um, a significant movement prior to COVID would have been a two or three cent, a three percent change in demand. 
but to see in excess of 50% of demand just lost almost overnight from service stations in April and May of last year was, um, well, it was shocking. There's no other way of describing it. What have has the industry seen in terms of prices and changes to the demand of oil since that time? Well, it's sort of been mixed. So what we've seen in terms of total volume, so if you think about oil, we make multiple products, you know, diesel, petrol and aviation fuel. The aviation fuel element is still fairly significantly depressed and around the globe it's about, you know, depending upon the economy you're talking about, 60 to 70% down on pre-COVID demand. In the areas of petrol and diesel, though, we've seen a pretty good recovery back to pre-COVID levels. So we're within 10 to 12% on petrol of where we were pre-COVID and we're basically almost back to level on diesel diesel volumes at the moment are about 3% below where we were um, sort of pre-COVID. Price-wise, we've seen a 35% increase. So those those factors of demand returning has meant that the supply price being levied on us, both in terms of oil price and finished product, has gone up by about 36% since this time last year. What that means in simple terms is the wholesale price of petrol, for instance, being sold to service stations at the moment was 86 cents a litre this time last year. And at the moment, the national average is at $1.26. And looking at the, I guess, the international price of of crude oil per barrel, where is it sitting at at the moment in in an average kind of range? Um, Well, it's, it's sort of still sitting around that 55 to 65 US dollars a barrel range which is sort of, you know, it's up off the floor in terms of where it was, as you say, where in some markets we were probing zero, but in most markets we were probing the sort of the high 20s or the early 30s. So, you know, to that extent, we've probably seen it recover close to where you would expect it to be. It's still a little low as a result of the reduced demand coming from the aviation sector because, you know, we we have a lot of um, planes that simply aren't flying. Mark McKenzie, who is CEO of Australasian Convenience and Marketers Association, and he was speaking there with John Daly. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming. Jane McNaughton here with you today on the program. Plastification of the planet is the term coined for what's happening around the globe when it comes to microplastic pollution. A new study of airborne plastic particles by the National Academy of Scientists of the United States says plastic pollution is one of the most pressing environmental issues of the 21st century. The study found billions of tonnes of discarded plastic is being broken down into microplastics and then thrown back into the air over farmland by road traffic and wind. Dr Mark Brown from the University of New South Wales School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences says there's growing evidence plastic is ending up in our diets, including in meat. We've been looking at the um, sources, fates and impacts of of tiny particles of plastic since about 2004. Um, There's this recent article that's come out that's collected some particles in atmospheric deposition traps and then combined that with existing data with some modelling to try to estimate potential sources. And that's really because people are concerned about where this sheer vast volume of plastics are actually going. Are they going to particular parts of the environment? Are they accumulating in organisms? And do they cause organisms or us any impacts? So just take us a step back here, Dr. Brown. What are microplastics for people that maybe aren't sure? So 
So microplastics are simply micrometer-sized particles of plastic. So when plastics break down or when they're emitted from garments or from cleaning products, they can contain these tiny particles. And the reason we're worried about them is that the smaller the particle gets, the more places it can get into. Um, so if it starts getting into organisms, um, it can start causing problems. Dr. Brown, you've been studying microplastic for many years now. How big of a problem is it for agriculture? And are, are you finding microplastics on agricultural fields? We've begun work looking at agricultural fields. We suggested back in 2011 this would be a useful place to start. And we've only just been able to get access to those places to be able to collect those samples. We haven't processed those samples yet, so I couldn't really comment. So there's been multiple studies in the past about microplastics potentially being in the drinks that we consume and also some of the things that we eat. Is there a concern that some of our, say, meat or poultry products or fish may have microplastics in their flesh? Yes, there is a legitimate concern about that. Um, And certainly we do find those particles there. The issue really is is that when you're when you're dealing with these small particles, and if most of them are things like clothing fibers, you have to be really careful about how you do that work. So unless you have things like which are called blank samples, which go through the entire process as well as your environmental samples, if you don't collect those types of blank samples, you can't determine whether or not the particles you're finding in the samples have actually come from the meat or the poultry or the the, or the water or the drinks that you sampled as opposed to the actual procedures that you used to sample, i.e. your clothing and things. So we need to be really careful about that. And those types of studies um, are only just being starting to be done. We've, we've been calling for those types of studies since 2011 and government and industry have been really slow to respond. So um, we as scientists can only do that type of research when we're given access to those environments to sample and also given the resources to be able to do the appropriate work. All the time, the amount of plastic that we use in the environment is increasing. We're seeing a lot of people suggesting that we should go to natural alternatives like plant-based fibers or wool-based fibers for clothes and similar things for exfoliants for you know cleaning products where they're suggesting shells of organisms or they're suggesting um, bits of sand and and other types of materials. The issue there is that some of those natural particles can cause problems too. So what we need is a comprehensive scientific framework that actually evaluates what the different options are and determines how they reduce emissions and how they reduce impacts. Um, As I say, industry and government have been incredibly slow to do that. And all the time we're scientists being asked, what are the ways to reduce it? And we can't provide that information if the scientific work isn't funded. And as you just mentioned, there's, uh, there is a lack of, of information here, but what potential health effects can microplastics cause to humans and also to livestock? So microplastics, they can cause inflammation, um, they can cause fibrosis, which is scar tissue. They can transfer chemicals into organisms, which can reduce their ability to withstand sort of infections. Some of them can cause changes in the assemblages of organisms, i.e. the mixtures of animals and plants that you find. So there are a range of impacts that, that occur. Dr Mark Brown from the University of New South Wales School of Biological, Earth and Environmental Sciences. From the top end to Tassie, countrywide on ABC Radio.
You might have started to see the first new season oranges and mandarins arrive in shops recently, but the prices on that fruit could be going up. Despite the recruitment of workers from the Pacific Islands, citrus workers say they are still facing a significant labour shortfall and are battling the high costs of quarantining workers. CEO of Citrus Australia, Nathan Hancock, says he is expecting a challenging and prolonged harvest season. The situation is, is as we predicted. There are a shortage of pickers available, a shortage of workers available in the Riverland and, and across Australia in general. And as we get into the main harvest, that's only going, going to get worse. Earlier in March, you called for state governments to up their cap on hotel quarantine. What happened since then and how many workers from the Pacific Islands are actually in the country so far? The number of Pacific Island workers across Australia is close to 3,000 now. Remembering that a lot of those don't go into meatworks and we're really focused on what's happening in horticulture and in, for my industry, particularly in citrus. The numbers are increasing in citrus, which is great to see. And I think we have to work with what we've got. So firstly, we appreciate what each of the state governments has done so far in order to get a quarantine pathway. But we would reiterate our position that the simplest thing that we could do is to make some purposely put aside hotel quarantine to make it more effective and efficient for growers to move people in and out to the growing regions. How many more workers are needed? Look, we still think there's going to be a shortfall now as we go into winter. And there's winter crops being picked all over the country with vegetables and, and other fruit crops. And citrus itself draws down a lot of, of workers. And I think that in this region, you know, it's close to probably two and a half to 3,000 workers out there picking fruit per day in the height of harvest. And that is really going to draw down on the numbers of, of available workers here. There's not enough scheduled to come in with the seasonal worker program as it currently is and there's certainly not enough working holiday makers or students around to, to, to make up the shortfall. What will that mean for citrus growers here in the Riverland? Are you confident that all the crop will be picked? What we expect to see is that it will be a very slow harvest. I think the crop will largely get picked but it will mean that it's a very, very slow, long season and that can be difficult to manage. There will be certain varieties that will lose shelf life as they sit on the tree and they'll just have to be abandoned. But really what will happen is the processes will all slow down. Some people think that may be not too bad a, a thing because there's a lot of unreliability in the shipping at the moment and getting containers. But I think at the end of the day, our businesses run on being efficient and um, this major inefficiency in getting the harvest picked very slowly means that the packing sheds operate very slowly means that the containers get filled very slowly i just think it's an issue we could have avoided by having more people available more quickly what effect will that also have for the consumer that is getting that citrus fruit off the supermarket shelf will they be likely to experience actually an increase in price that's a potential scenario i would say when we've got a slow harvest it means that the amount of fruit available to go to the different markets will be less as well when and when we have a, a situation that supply is short that can drive prices up so it's not inconceivable that we would see some prices increase there's more costs this year for those that are using the seasonal workers program but even those that aren't are getting challenged 
challenged by the available workers for increasing wages, a push to be more paid by the hour as well. These are all costs that have to be passed on and it's, there's a potential this year that we will see increases in prices to cover growers' costs. It's not price gouging or anything like that. It's simply things have become more expensive to do. Inputs are more expensive. You know, things like diesel, things like materials that we're using in our packing sheds, the ag chem and fertiliser that we use, all those things have gone up in price. Colloquially referred to as a COVID tax. It's simply we rely on other countries for a lot of that production of those materials and they've all put their prices up and unfortunately the grower is the one at the end of the line that either has to absorb those costs or find a way to pass them on and I think we will probably see a case that that does get passed on this year. CEO of Citrus Australia, Nathan Hancock, speaking to Jessica Schremer. And staying on food prices, have you become used to eating crayfish at a cheaper price since the Chinese bans of the seafood? Well, you might now have to start paying a bit extra. Southern Rock Lobster Beach prices, which are the prices paid to fishermen by processors, are the highest they've been since China banned Australian exports. Professor Andrew Ferguson says fishermen are currently earning above the $50 a kilo mark and he told Bridget Herman that tighter local supplies is one of the things driving the price up. Other countries like New Zealand, particularly for the export market, it's not just in a break, it's just starting to come back again now. But uh, yeah, about the 50s, mid-50s thereabouts I think at the moment. So yeah, it's been sort of a bit of a higher point than it has been over the last few months anyway, that's for sure. How high is this compared to since China blocked Australia from trade? Oh, certainly not to that level. I think at that time it was more up around $100 a kilo each price. But uh, yeah, no, still still not where, not where a lot of people would like it to see it, that's for sure. Is this the highest it's been since then? Yes, yes, it is. It is. It's the highest I've seen since uh, oh, end of October last year, I guess. And, and you said it was sort of to do with the supply that's available. How much quota's been caught here in the southern zone? Yeah, well, that's part of the problem, I suppose. Everyone's finishing up and there's not many fishing. And it's the end of the season and, yeah, it's just this old supply and demand. There's not much supply for the marketplace across the markets that we've got left. So it's actually you know, a, a good in some report, some ways, but not uh, if we if everyone was fishing. I don't think it'd be the, it would be the same, that's for sure. And what does it mean for consumer prices having this little rise? Well, well, I think we've we've probably we've, we've got what have we got to, for Mother's Day to come? Well, I guess is uh, maybe we'll see. I don't know what the what the, what the market will be like in the local market, but maybe there'll be opportunity to sell a few cooked lobsters. But that might have increased a little bit to where we saw it at Easter time and so forth. Though. And what were the prices around Easter time? And where do you think they'll be sitting now? I think the Easter price was around the 65, which I think we were selling for it at Easter, over Easter, cooked. I know we've got some, well, some of the stores might still have some left, so they might be still offering at the same store. I can't really speak to them, but the uh, opportunity to buy cooked lobsters, yeah, it's always there. I think a few supermarkets have stocked up for the winter, but, you know, it's, it's, it's possibly a slower burn than was it is what, it, what it usually is at Christmas time, though. And do you expect these higher beach prices to hold on until the end of the fishing season? Well, I don't, who knows? We, we depends on a whole lot of factors with, with other suppliers around the world because we're in a world market and we see New Zealand come back now. They fish the winter and Tasmania fish uh, winter time. So, 
Yeah, it's hard to say. It's always hard to know. You never know. Does it look like China is interested in restarting trade with the Australian lobster market? I don't know. I think they probably are. I think there's, they, they would probably like to have our product because we've, we've a lot of products now gone out of the market having Australia not to supply it. Uh, and I know the price in China for similar species like ours has gone uh, up a lot in value. So, yes, I'm, I'm sure they would, but, you know, they're actually where product's been locked out. So, you know, no, I don't think we'll, we won't be seeing any product go back in there in the, in the short term anyway. So... Are you looking at finding new export markets still, and, and how is that going? Yeah, we, we're, we're searching the world in the in the you know in our methodology of what, what we have at our fingertips on the computer and whatnot, but not travelling. Obviously, we've got bits and pieces with trials going across the world, a bit into America and that virtual trade shows and whatnot we're doing at the moment, but. Yeah, without uh, samples on the ground and people on the ground, it, it is a bit difficult. Ferguson Australia's Managing Director, Andrew Ferguson. And that's all we've got time for today on Countrywide. Thank you for your company. If you're keen to get some more rural news, head online to abc.net.au forward slash rural. Catch you next week.